There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Come on, girls. Let's go shopping. That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife. What are you looking at? Rolling in a boy, gentlemen, man. You're mad, you bastard. Far am you. Far am you. There's no cash here. Here, there's no cash, all right? Cash, no. Robbo? No cash. Where to Christ, Liz, you get a bag of all sorts in here, mate. Welcome to Walk Walk. Hello and welcome to Last New Way, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that this podcast is being recorded on, the Wajak people of the Perth region. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past and present. On this episode, I interview director Nick Torrens of the film uh, China's Three Dreams, which is another one of the documentaries that's playing at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Now, I knew nothing of Nick Torrens heading into uh, this interview or, or regarding his films, and that's a real shame because out of all the interviews that I've done for the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival and in regards to this particular podcast, The Last New Wave, uh, this particular interview is certainly one of the more enlightening ones and one of the more interesting ones. I found China's Three Dreams a really fantastic, brilliant film and certainly one of the films that I highly recommend people seek out when it screens at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on the 15th of July. And not just because it's a good film, but because it's the sort of film that we don't really get to see in cinemas all too often. Unfortunately, uh, you know, Nick's films just aren't widely out there and accessible, which is uh, sad because they're, they're really, you know, going on the, the quality of China's Three Dreams, they're great. It's a really fantastic film. And if you listen to my interview with the director of Complicit on AB Film Review, you'll know that I compared the the two films together, so China's Three Dreams and Complicit, and they tell two sides to a similar story, which is about the history of China. And, you know, me possibly being a little bit more ignorant than, than many people out there, uh, I'm not really that aware of the history of China and the current situation in China, and I probably should be. And through these two films, uh, China's Three Dreams and Complicit, the history and the current status of China is explored. And certainly within China's Three Dreams, the history of what China means to the people that currently live there, who are trying to find out more about their history and the culture that they are trying to take in as people who live in China, is fascinating. And certainly, you know, there is a lot to, to talk about in regards to censorship and uh, in particular, as Nick mentions in, in the interview, talking about uh, certainly taking away people's ability to recognize their own history in regards to something like the Tiananmen Square protests, which is certainly an event that is marked you know, monumentally in uh, Western society. We have recognized that it's something that occurred, but the erasure of that particular event within China is a fascinating thing to see. Look, I don't want to talk too much longer because the interview is really fascinating. Uh, even if you don't manage to get to see China's Three Dreams, I, I still think this is a really fascinating interview. And certainly, you know, I had a great time talking to Nick. I think I could have talked for another hour or more. Um, it was just really fascinating. So please do head along to go and see his film, China's Three Dreams, which is screening on July 15th at 5 p.m., it's worthwhile noting as well that China's Three Dreams won the Best Documentary Prize at the Film Critics Circle of Australia in 2015. Nick was also nominated for Best Director of a Documentary Feature uh, for the ADG, the Australian Directors Guild Awards as well, which is great to hear too. I've talked too much. Let's take a quick listen to the trailer and we'll be back with the interview. Nobody tell me. When I was young, I can't get this information. I only get the, the history of what government want us to know, but maybe it's not the truth, you know. In the 70s, Chinese people had a dream, a 
就是邓小平的梦，希望通过走政府监管下的资本主义道路，让中国变得富裕起来。这就让第二个梦变得更加强烈，追求美好生活的梦。Um, so welcome back, everybody.、Um, I'm joined by director Nick Torrance, whose film China China's Three Dreams is showing at Melbourne Documentary Film Festival in July. And you're a fairly seasoned、uh, documentary filmmaker with a you know you've you've been working for for many many years now, and this is your latest piece of work, which is just a fantastic documentary. Oh, sorry, I've got a I've got a problem with that line, Andrew.、Oh, sure, can you hear me、okay. there? Hello? Yeah, it just actually broke up there, but I but I have I have got you now. Okay, sure, no worries. Just let me know if that happens, and、uh, obviously we'll try and、um, I will make sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay.、Um, okay. Yeah, so I, I'm joined by director Nick Torrens, and his、uh, film China's Three Dreams is screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. It's a fantastic documentary.、Uh, Nick, can you tell us a little bit about the film itself and and how you came up with、uh, deciding to tell this story? Um, yeah, there's so much to say. I mean, China is such a a huge social and political experiment, and、um, as we know, and、um, it sort of seduced me、um, many, many, many years ago in terms of the exploration of a kind of a, a, an amazing society like that.、Um, and I kept coming up with ideas、um, every time I was there.、Um, About great films, things that I didn't know, things I would like other people to know、um, that are opposite or that are in addition to what we do know, and particularly in these era. I mean, in the era of、um, particularly television factual, which、um, you know has taken over from documentary on, on, on Australian television, but also in television in many countries. You know, I, I kind of having grown up with that sort of absolute. Uh, movement and need to tell stories, to find out things and tell stories、um, in a meaningful way, and to explore film language. It's quite a shock to have、uh, to me that television in so many places, including the ABC and SBS, have、um, have gone so far downhill in the way of、um, wanting viewers so badly、um, to answer government need. Um, to pay for them, that they actually, you know, are much more formulaic. So everything's a formula. We've got to have presenters and narrators and presenters telling you what's going to happen and what did happen, and、um, and it's much more entertainment television than documentary. So I'm just,、uh, I, I, I sort of really, really found China just such an extraordinary place that I thought I've got to spend more time here and I've got to do a long-term project. So that's how it sort of began. Hmm. And when did you start filming this as well? Because it it, it appears to take place over for quite a period of time,、um, and, and encompasses quite a lot of、uh, different people that meet along the way in telling their own stories and their own their own parts of their their Chinese history. So it seemed like you spent quite a lot of、uh, quite a lot of time in China telling this story and, and gathering the the footage for the story. Yeah, that's right, Andrew. I mean, I I, I、um, this film. Actually, the filming on this project started in 1996,、um, along with another film I was making in China, because I'd found the possibility of a great story、um, while I was there. So I started filming this one.、Um, I continued. Oh, in, 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 in 1997, I was actually filming another another story in Hong Kong, and a, and a, which was called Running from the Ghost. And、um, oh, no, 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 sorry, sorry. This was returning to Running from the Ghost, which is a 1984 film I made.、Um, but、um, I was actually following、um, uh, the people in、um, in, uh, in in Hong Kong and China in another film, and、um, that, and that and then that film sort of became、uh, a great idea for. Um, for a, a way into China for me, so、um, the woman, the Chinese woman in Hong Kong, and the family I was filming with three、uh, three little kids,、um, she had、uh, was an illegal immigrant. You know, she'd come back from China to her Hong Kong Chinese husband, and had not returned to China. So she'd gone underground like so many people did, and then she got. And、then I got a phone call、uh, from her, her, well, from a woman I know that knew that. That, that, that knew those people, and she said,、um, "Mayusaw is、uh, being arrested on Monday
and uh, she, she, she wants you to come and um, and be with them while, while she gets arrested and sent back to China. So I got on a plane the next day and spent the last night with that family on their floor and went back to China to her mother's village. And that began, that began a story which then um, became China's Three Dreams. And that was in, that's 96, 97. And then that actually, that story actually didn't actually ever make it into um, China's Three Dreams mm-hmm. because there were many things, but basically it was mainly financial. I just don't have the money. When you work like this, it's a very, very low, um, low income situation and you're doing a lot of uh, the filming and everything alone so that you can do you can make the story cheaply now in that case um when we come to finishing it's you know it's it's hugely expensive the longer the production is for good um you know good good uh, picture and sound finishing so um you know countless thousands so basically i had to make it a feature-length documentary and lose one of the main stories. So that's a long way of saying that I actually uh, started the film, but the first uh, story that is in, in China's Three Dreams now started in 2002. So I was filming all the time, you know, since 96 or 7, but in 2002 I started filming the story, the first story that was in China's Three Dreams. And the other story came about um, 2008 or nine. I started, I found her and then I started filming that too. So it was a really long-term project. And um, and basically that's what you have to do, I believe, to, um, you know, to get the confidence and to spread that confidence for the wider circle, the ever-widening circle of confidence in you and the project by people you meet. And, you know, the, the, the stories that are being told here are very personal stories and, you know, they're stories about generations and families and, you know, there's a, I won't spoil it for viewers, uh, but there's a, there's a very powerful moment that I found at a birthday party sort of near the end of the film, which I found really, really just a, a, a challenging moment in cinema in the sense that, you know, one of the characters says something and I didn't expect him to say uh, that, well, he's not a character, he's a person, of course. Um, but, yeah, sure. you know, these are the, the, the stories that you've been able to draw out of these people are really engaging and interesting and, and they feel like stories that they would only tell family members. So was that long period of time that mm. you were working there, did that really help you build up those relationships there? And, and do you continue talking to them as well? Yeah, well, the first part of that question, I mean, certainly that's the, that, that, is, the, that is the answer. Um, that's That's... The reason why you can get people to, to when you do develop a sense of trust in the project, it takes time. You can tell people as often as you like that you're doing this or that, but real people, I mean, rather than filmmakers, real people, um, you know, they won't know um, what it means when you say what you're going to do in making a film. So you can say that many, many times that the only real thing um, that matters is, is the way you uh, behave perform, act, um, cooperate with them, um, you know, gain their trust. And that's, that's anywhere. I found that particularly in Indigenous stories in Australia in the, in the late 70s and 80s, it was the same. You, you, you don't just walk into a house and say, OK, well, we're going to film now. You actually are part of their lives. And, you, 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 you know, once a, after a few years, you might be, um, you know, given the access to the things that really matter in that society. And in China, most definitely, that's that case. That was the case. And so, yeah, for that part, it took a long time. And um, in fact, I was filming Jiang Lei, the, the, the young woman who is really probably the main um, subject, the main story in, in China's Three Dreams. I was filming her. I'd got to know, I'd met her, and then, and then I was filming her and talking to her for eighteen months before. She opened up her, her her heart, so she wanted to say things, and she did. And I kept with her, and I'd come back to Australia, and I'd go back there, and so on. And sometimes we corresponded through email, mostly through Google Translate, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but often with um, friends of mine who speak Putonghua um, and friends of hers that spoke English or one friend. So in that way, we were in touch all the time, and 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 eventually she. And she said, I want to see everything about you. You know, like, I like this idea, but what are you? You know, who are you? What's the... Suddenly, suddenly, 
let me know. T- send me stuff. T- tell me, show me films you've made. Um, show me somehow what you are and why I should trust you. And so that took a long time. And then when she did trust me, it was a, it's, it's been an extraordinary relationship since. And um, and she really opened up her family then. And she did that scene. She sort of and and, and then during the film when she goes back to see her. Her parents had sort of cut her off at the end of the Cultural Revolution and caused her agony um, to, to, and her view of lack of trust and sort of lack of meaning in life that the film sort of tries to endeavour to uncover and show the reasons for, then that sort of, once that trust is there, I'm really hoping the process is helping her. And that's what you really need um, as a filmmaker for your process to be uh, more important to them than they are to you in a film. And in that case, um, it, it worked really well. And she started opening up the family. The family then got on board. Then they started suggesting red guards and various people, victims and so on, who, who I had talked to. And, um, and we all sort of continued a collaboration, which was wonderful. I do still, uh, I still am in touch with them. I, of course I am. Um, I mean, these are actually all my films. I'm in touch with the, the main uh, subjects of the film. They're, they're journeys through their life that I've been part of. And the children, mm. in some cases, have, have grown up, you know, with me as the uncle, you know. So it's kind of like a, 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 a constant um, uh, connection. And it's not as frequent now as it was. Um, but, um, I, you know, we still email each other quite a lot. I sent her. She loves... Um, Jung Lee absolutely loves uh, Frida Kahlo and oh. painted Frida Kahlo on her walls in in her in her little uh, her little shop that's in the film. And I went to a Frida Kahlo exhibition in um, in Sydney last year and sent her a whole lot of stuff from the from the art gallery shop, you know. And because um, I knew how much she loved them, and they wouldn't be available in in her village. So anyway, yeah, we're still in touch. And her uncle, the the lawyer, who who was so incredibly articulate. Um, he's he's he really is fantastically interested, and he sends me lots of uh, information, and I send him and the other uncles uh, information. I've helped them with some of their own projects. It's just an ongoing friendship. Yeah, it's a it's a two way road, I, I imagine, um, in the sense that yes. you know it's a symbiotic relationship. You you are telling their story, and and yes, as you said, you in turn uh, tell your story to them as well. Um, and they have to accept and trust you. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, which is fair. I mean, I, I imagine for, for documentary filmmakers, it's probably one of the hardest things to be able to do is to, to gain that relationship of trust with your the subjects, essentially, that you're trying to tell the story. And you've done it really well here. It's, it's spectacular. And for somebody who I am not too familiar with the history of China, unfortunately, and I think that... Uh, mm-hmm. I, unfortunately, I think uh, you know quite a few people uh, around Australia, at least, um, are probably not as familiar with the history of China, and and it shows that, that with your film here, that you know, of course, even the uh, the younger generations in China are not familiar with the history of China. So, yeah. was that aspect of of trying to explore what the history of China means to different generations and the future of China as well. Was that what drove you to tell this particular story? Um, or was that a personal interest that you'd always had? Okay, it was a personal interest I've always had, most definitely. But it wasn't the... Um, that point that you've made about showing the lack of knowledge by young people in their own history and the reasons for that, that came out of the documentary process, as things always do. I, you know, the film was always called in my mind and in my uh, intention, China's Three Dreams, or just Three Dreams, The Dreams of New China it was at first, which was basically, of course, because the generations are so, so different and they have different dreams. So I was aware of that, and the three dreams, of course, that used to be uh, always known before Deng Xiaoping and before the uh, opening of the, of the market in China, the sort of capitalist road, they were a, a, a watch, a, a, a watch, a wireless and a bicycle, you know, a radio, a bicycle and a watch were the three dreams of China's yeah. people. It was a sort of well-stated thing. So I was looking at what are the new dreams and what three dreams there might be. And Zhang Li, she describes beautifully those three dreams in the film. But that was the main motivation. Then when I found her and when I found Bao Wolf, as he called himself, and, and Angel, 
um, and, and then his, his um, second girlfriend, Shuli, then their stories, you know, they, they lead me. I mean, of course they lead you, unless you're making factual material, which is basically scripted and, you know, I might as well be fiction. I mean, non it might as well be fiction, but it's non-fiction. So, you, you know, you script those things, you do them quite quickly, and, and um, you get them out, and you, you know, hopefully you get a lot of audiences. But with true documentary, you, you know, you really do have to take a long time, but it's not that hard to get the confidence of people if you're the right sort of person, the right interested person who really wants to learn stuff, and who is, uh, and they know that. That's not so hard to get people to open up, except it needs time, much more time than... Than you know, than, than general television schedules allow. Mm. So that's why documentaries have always been very, very different to television schedules. But anyway, yes, that's that's the way. Um, it, it, it's not hard to do, but it takes time. And um, and I didn't really start with the idea of, of exploring why the young people of China don't um, know um, or, or why and and uh, they don't know much about their own history, um, but. It became so important because it was important to Jiang Lei and to the other characters in the film too. They all actually are, you know, well, they're all saying that in a film. They're saying, you know, like, we should know this stuff. We don't know it. We don't know it. And the, most of the young people say, we don't know, but we don't care. Mm. Because, you know, our parents and grandparents have told us what an absolutely painful and tortured life they led, you know, in, in all sorts of ways. Of course they did. And, and, and they also got um, a sort of a sense that I really feel sorry for my, my, my parents and grandparents, but I don't want to be like them. I'm not like them. I know stuff. I've got the internet. You know, I've got more money than they had. So it's kind of like a, what, I, what some of the more insightful people that I met told me over those years was, <laughs> we've, we know a lot, but we don't know what we don't know. Yes. And that sounds a bit like Donald Rumsfeld in some ways, but <laughs> but, but essentially it's sort of really true. They, the, the, the very young, the millennials that we call them and the, and the post-90s generation that the Chinese call them, the people who are born, born well, post-1990 and, um, and, and into the new millennium, those people, the 15-year-olds, the 20-year-olds, they actually don't know a lot of stuff and they think they know everything because they know so much more than, than anyone in their family has ever known, you know. But the, but the older generations, of course, don't talk about, that's the point, that the older generations don't tell them what happened because the kids, are, you know, they've heard it or they don't want to know it anymore. It's not very interesting, all that suffering and pain, and it's not going to happen to me, so thanks, Granny, but I don't need to hear any more about that, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. I mean, that's quite common to anyone in the world, really. That sort of shutting down of people's memories. Um, you know, the elders, the elders not having their, their 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 place in society that they used to. Yeah, and there's a, there's a certain scene in the the film which I found uh, surprising when one of the the people is trying to do a search for information on Tiananmen Square, and yeah, it comes all it comes up all blocked and everything like that, and. You know, as, a, yes. as an outsider of, of China, you know, unfortunately, we, we are familiar with the, the censorship that goes on. But to censor their own history is just and it for something that, that for the rest of the world seems such a, a common knowledge thing. Like I think that most people would know about Tiananmen Square. But for, mm. for people within China to not know about that is is frightening in a way. Um, and to be yeah, denied yeah, their own history. Mm. Well, that's right. Um, that, 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 that guy, I mean, Xiong Wei, who is looking up Tiananmen Square on the internet in the film, but he's, also, he's always searching the internet for, for, for knowledge. But he, he, um, he got a job. Um, when I first met him, he was a barman. Then he got a job on, as a, as a, on, a, on one of those uh, Yangtze River cruises that you know, tourists go on, mm -hmm. through, past the Three Gorges and out down to Shanghai. And they start in Chongqing, the, the city where we, I did all that filming. And he, because he was working on that, on that boat, on that, one of those river cruises, he, he was talking to Americans and they told him about Tiananmen Square. Oh. And he didn't believe them. And, and, he just, and he said to me, what do you know about Tiananmen Square when I first met him? He's a really good friend of mine now. And both so is his wife. They're gorgeous people. But anyway, so basically 
I would get, gather material. I would send. I would put it on DVDs. I would. You can't post things like that in China. It's not really safe, even though it's not as bad as it's made out. It's not. You know, often DVDs just don't get to their destination mm-hmm. um, because if it's obviously a DVD, it's opened, or sometimes it is. Anyway, so I take them over next time I'm there and showed him stuff. And I mean, when you've been brought up as we have been with a certain worldview, it's very hard to accept an opposing worldview. I mean, even for us. So Americans, for example, you know, most Americans probably, and certainly the politicians, you know, they think that that Bradley Manning, Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange, Edward Snowden are traitors, absolute traitors. And they're treated like that. And they want them to be locked up and, and, and treated terribly badly. And so that's no different from the Chinese government wanting, you know, uh, wanting to treat people badly that complain about, that let out information about their system. It's, you know, we're not that different. Mm. But there's much more of that sort of um, cover-up in, in um, China than there is in the West, that's for sure. Or at least that's what I believe. Um, but certainly we're not too different in those ways when you come down to worldviews. And when I told um, uh, Xiong Wei about what happened in Tiananmen Square, as I, as I understood it, you know, as growing up, um, he still, and sometimes when he saw a film I'd given him, which was an American documentary about it, he said, I said, what did you think? And he said, oh, well, you know, I mean, that's, there's an awful lot of American propaganda in there. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, if you look, listen to the narration, there is. But what about when you see what you see when you see the the absolute like tanks running over people um open fire across the students i mean when you see that don't you believe it and he said oh look i think it was really bad but he said i don't know that i could believe an american documentary like that so you know it's it's quite it's quite fascinating that's what i love about china or anyone that's totally different from us because you're confronting such different worldviews such different educations and and how you believe the ideology that you're brought up with or don't believe it. Yeah, it it really is fascinating. And and one of the things I do love that you've done here is you've you've uh, placed in uh, footage from from movies and I assume old newsreel footage as well. Is that correct? Um, in between sort mm. of people discussing to kind of reinforce the fact that these things did actually happen and. Here is here is genuine footage of this occurring, or here is a representation in a film from you know a closer era uh, mm. of, of this particularly happening. Was that a conscious decision to sort of say, okay, these people are talking about it, but here is the proof of of, of it occurring? Oh, certainly, uh, Andrew. It's a, it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing. I, I did a fantastic study of Chinese cultural revolution filmmaking. It was so interesting. You know, I like to. I've got so many films, so so many. This is actually drama films, actually, thinking of things like that. So there are some wonderful films that were made before they were all shut down. And some films that were... That are, well, the main film I used in that was called The Blue Kite, and that's a very famous film. It yes. actually was hugely loved in um, in the United States. It, I, think it, I don't know if it won awards, but it was certainly invited to lots of film festivals. And I love that film. And that what I wanted to do was parallel what the stories I was hearing because they were talking about exactly the same sorts of things that happened to their family as are shown, represented in the, in the drama, in the, in the, the blue kite, in the film itself. So I was actually um, juxtaposing scenes from the blue kite where you could, you could, you could, you could look at the, the mother, the Jungle's mother, the main character's main subject's mother, and she's talking. And then you can see the woman that was her when she was young going through that same thing in a feature film that was banned. Actually, that director lost his career for 10 years mm. when he made that film. But anyway, so it's kind of like a, a, a wonderful way to be able to do that. And the archive, well, the archive comes from everywhere. And I tried to find archive I hadn't seen before, of course, because I, I'm very, very... I think archive is used so badly in, in, in documentaries usually. It's... it's, it's, it's it, you know, found footage, you, you, I'm sure you're familiar. Yes. I mean, found footage, is, it, it evokes a certain um, uh, uh, response. And sometimes the response that it evokes, like, wasn't that funny or wasn't that different, is the only reason the filmmaker has put it in. 
Yeah. And if you actually use it properly, really well, really intelligently, it's just wonderful, you know, because you can actually, you can clarify and you can counterpoint ideas, you know, with the use of found footage of archive. And the best people I know are Robert Stone, you know, who, who, who got a, uh, an Oscar a long time ago for um, um, Radio Bikini about the nuclear testing, American atomic testing. And then, uh, oh, The Gorilla, The Taking of Paddy Hearst. About oh, yes. Wonderful. It's a great film, yeah. You know, his liberation of it. Anyway, he's a friend of mine in New York, and he uses it wonderfully, and of course, Errol Morris does. Yes. Fantastic. So, I mean, they're the only two people I know. Oh, Dennis O'Rourke used it well, too. But, you know, in terms of that, it's always been an absolute kind of, oh, I don't know, a sort of a, an obsession of mine to use archive material with its full potential rather than, you know, this overlay that you get in um, mostly on, on um, in such your television where you kind of just look at it and go, oh, that's what happened. So simple illustration rather than juxtaposition or, or adding to meaning. So, yes, it was wonderful. It was always an intention, and I did lots and lots and lots of study on, on all the material I could find. Some of the material I used to find in, in villages in China, for goodness sake. You know, I'd find I'd find material and I'd, and I'd, and I'd think, okay, and I'd buy all these um, uh, DVDs that are there for the uh, tourist trade, you know, in little villages that's been visited. Oh, where she lived, particularly, in, mm-hmm. in, in um, Sichuan, that, that 1,100-year-old village in, on the edge of Tianjin. So, and everything. I found things everywhere, and then I'd go tracing them down. And you know, basically, it is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a wonderful exploration when you use archive. It takes a lot of time, but when you use it well, or when you can use it well, because you've got the, the right stuff, it's fabulous. Well, as you're saying, the you know, documentary when you're making it, especially over such a long period of time, it is a very labor-intensive uh, thing. And to and then to add on top of that, the the combing through. Um, you know, archival footage and and other films from that period as well um, takes a lot yes. of time. So I, I imagine that you probably had a lot of footage that you had there. And, and was there kind of a besides the story that you were talking about earlier? Was there a, a, a story that you you had wished that you'd been able to contain in the film, but due to length that you you had to cut out, or how much yes, footage well, you sent to the um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't shoot. I mean, I should have left footage over those years. But um, I mean, I'm a filmmaker who came <laughs> who came up by using film. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we used to, you know, it used to cost. Oh, what did it cost? You know, like it was about um, oh, three hundred dollars for ten minutes. Mm. Um, you know, and 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 then suddenly there was you know tapes, and they were ten dollars for three hours or something. So you know what I mean? People lost the discipline. They could just shoot anything, yes. whereas I used to kind of like you know have to drink about half a bottle of vodka after I'd after I because I'd because sh- I'd gone over my um, <laughs> that day I'd gone over my 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 knowledge of uh, the ratio allowance. So you really learn to discipline your approach, and you really have to identify the themes because subjects, of course, always change in documentary, the, the, you know, the way you start out with this idea and then what it becomes in a true documentary, it, it evolves, it evolves, it travels. But, but you know, what you've got to do is you've got to know more than, um, than what looks good on first sight, investigate your own concept and try to find out, um, basically really search for the, for, the, for the way that the themes you're after will be, will be uh placed in the film when you know your themes then you can shoot all day at different scenes and you at different places different people and you think right that's dealing with that theme that's dealing with that theme you know how much you've covered on each of these themes what is the film going to say how much have i been able to cover what i wanted to say and when you do that you know you get a great film like all these great films of the past you know the wonderful documentaries that stand the test of time and if you do that you actually really do know what you're getting mm. so you actually don't you actually you can shoot less <laughs> you have to, you can put off the, the shoot you're going to do tomorrow for example because it actually has been addressed yes it could always be better but you but you know you 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 know what you've got and you know what you need and i think that 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 helps an awful lot um having that discipline from film to move to to um videotape and so on and then to um you know to 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 just 
you know, cards in the camera. So basically, you can shoot an awful lot, but I didn't shoot that much. I shot lots, but far too much for um, the old days. But certainly, <laughs> um, <laughs> but certainly, I, I shot. Um, Oh, did you ever see, just, can I just say, did you ever see Mike Rubo's um, Waiting for Fidel? Uh, no, I haven't, no. Oh, you, sh- you should see that. I mean, Mike's a friend, but, you know, and he's, he lives in Sydney again now. He was in Quebec for years and years, but, you know, working with the Canadian, Canadian Film Board. But he made this film with the Canadian Film Board called Waiting for Fidel. And all I was going to say is that he, that one of the people from the Film Board went with him while he was trying to talk to Fidel and... Um, and in Cuba, and um, and also one of the financiers of the, of the film went, and they used to have all these incredible arguments about Mike. What are you shooting that for? You know how much have you shot today? And Mike, <laughs> and Mike, of course, always got his cameraman to shoot all these conversations. So that was the part. That was part of the film. That was one of the first really reflexive films of this kind of new era. Oh, and um, and it's wonderful. Yeah, no, it's terrific. You should see it. Michael's terrific too. But basically, what what he's what he's doing is he's saying, you know, for goodness' sake, you know, you must be you must be shooting almost fifteen to one, Michael. It says to the financier, and and Michael said twenty five to one at the minimum. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, anyway. I'm sorry, I went off the track. No, you're so, not. Yes, I've yeah. shot a. I've, I've shot. <laughs> thanks. I've shot a lot, but you know, it's not. It's it. And the story that I didn't get in that I'd love to have got. I've got nothing. I've got no. Um, I've got no. Uh, what's the word? I don't. There's nothing I dislike about that film that I've done. I think it's terrific. I li- really like the way it came together. But what I didn't get was that that story of Mo Sora's uh, suing son her. The, the, what I was telling you about the, mm-hmm. the, the woman who was the illegal immigrant to Hong Kong because that that's terribly emotional, terribly strong, wonderful material, but um, it's such a huge story. So I cut lots of it. You know, I cut lots of it. I cut I cut masses of stuff, and it's terribly it's terribly complex. It's got so many layers, and it's beautiful, and it would have been wonderful in the film. But what I did was I had to just cut cut it and give it to the family (laughs) because because i couldn't i could not afford to actually finish the film longer than a feature i mean i i would have made a a three or four hour film if i could have i definitely would have it's not it wasn't actually ever going to be bought by um australian tv so i was not limited by the way that by the sort of needs that australian tv has so, you know, you can make these wonderful films. I mean, some of them, of course, are 11 hours, some of the extraordinary documentaries, but, and you can see it in parts. Yes. <laughs> but no, I didn't. I, 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 I left that story out, and that's a pity, because I, and I'm in touch with those people all the time. The kids now live in California, and we talk on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you also made a few other films, um, To Get Rich is Glorious and The Men Who Would Conquer China. Now, they came mm-hmm. out sort of just before... Uh, China's Three Dreams, but if I, if working my my poor mathematics correctly, if I you know figure it out, they they would have essentially crossed over in in filming in some way. Is that correct? Um, not to get which is glorious. That 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 was. Um, well, that was nineteen ninety eight, wasn't it? Or there? Yeah, no, yeah. yes, I think it came out in ninety eight. That's right. Yes, that was part of the Hong Kong handover to hand back to China, um, but. Um, the men who would conquer China was definitely overlapped. So I was actually filming. Yeah, I was. You're right. I was filming both of them as, at the same time as the early stuff in. in yes, I was filming both of them at the same time as the early st- early coverage of stories in in China's Three Dreams. But those and they came out finished. Yeah, so we finished to get which is glorious Deng Xiaoping in '98 and 2004. We finished. Um, um, the men who would conquer China, and I—that was—I was shooting that for four years. That one, yeah. Um, but I was shooting, I was shooting, yeah. So at the same time, I mean, I, I just sort of couldn't keep all, as, as as David Tiley in Screen Hub always, you know, used to say, you know, like <laughs> what did he say? Something about you know, Torrance has now made the the final chapter in in observational cinema. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not surprising because he's been working on the China project for 20 years. Yes. <laughs> so it's it sort of, it was basically like, a, yeah, those three were co- coexisting. But also, so was a film I was making with Ningali Lawford um, and, an, and a Native American and their connection to a satellite um, link to explore the differences that 200 years made from, you know, for the colonized people in America and Australia. 
And that was, I was shooting that from 2000 and, at the same time, 2000 and, and 2001, I think. So, yeah, so, yeah, th- those other, there were other films going on at the same time. So it wasn't like I was devoting all this time to China's Three Dreams alone. I was just going whenever I needed to, and I must have gone there, I don't know, 20 times to, to China for, for that film. But basically, I was doing different projects as well. I also did, oh no, that was afterwards. Yeah, the, you know, the, the, the politics that changed Australia about the Howard government. Yes. That, yeah, was, which, that, that, was, a three, that was a three-part series, and that was on SBS, and I started shooting that in... Yeah, I was shooting that while I was doing China, too. Yeah, wow. I was shooting that in 2007. I, I, I really enjoyed that TV series as well. Um, as somebody who uh, I've... As I've grown older, I've appreciated politics a lot more and appreciated talking about politics a lot more. So I, I do remember yeah. that, doc, that that TV series and, and watching it and yeah. it shaping uh, my uh, understanding of, of, you know, the Howard era and, and, and what politics is like in Australia. It certainly is, a, for me sure. at least, is very powerful. And so, uh, you know, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it because it's... Um, oh, good on you. Yes, that's great. I'm glad. It's, it's lovely. It's just... You know, I mean, it's a shame it didn't get. Um, well, it's wonderful. It's it's doing incredibly well, and it's 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 kind of like huge, hugely influential. I think now, in um, well, I don't know about influential, but it's certainly used by universities and so on. But I mean, the, the ABC, um, probably, you probably knew that they, you know, held us to ransom, mm. um, and wouldn't let us uh, use any. I'd planned the whole film with archives um, from the ABC because I used to work there when I was a kid. You know, I'd, I'd work on four corners when I was very young. I mean. And, and, and I know all the, the material, so I was going to use radio and, and ABC stuff and the um, and the um, the current affairs department at, um, at the ABC discovered that I'd, that I'd been shooting this material with, with Howard and Downer and all these people, um, and they hadn't begun theirs. And um, so when they began theirs, they put a block on any, you know, they said, Torrance can't have any material from the ABC. Oh. <laughs> it, was a, it was a big. It was called Broadcast Awards, and it came to Times on the front page one day. I remember. Wow. Um, and that was that was that was quite difficult because I'd already st- I was using three editors, and I, and I, you know, I'd already started editing, and I didn't have anything to edit except the, you know, the the, the material that I shot um, with all the participants, the, the authors and writers and historians and the politicians, but I didn't have the archive because I just wouldn't give it to me. So then. We had to explore for archives for seven, nine, ten, whatever yeah, we could. Filmmakers were winning me up and saying, look, you can use my stuff I did on such and such. You know, it was wonderful. Because there was quite a lot of doubt in the papers and there was a media watch was devoted to it and all that sort of thing. Yes. Because it was quite extraordinary, really, with the way they, they got so competitive. But that's what we've become, Andrew. Yes. as well. <laughs> Well, in that regard, one of the questions, um, you know, we'll, we'll wrap up in a minute because I've been going for, I've been yeah. stealing a lot of your time, um, and I appreciate it. But one of the questions which I have for somebody who's been working with documentaries in Australia for for such a long period of time, mm-hmm. where where do you see the the future of Australian documentaries? And you know, the changing from cinema to uh, obviously TV as well as an outlet that used to be an outlet for for, for showcasing uh, documentaries. Um, how do you see the future of it coming along? Well, it's it's basically there will always be people will people who decide to 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 make non-fiction, you know, um, projects are going to always find a way to say what they need to say. I mean, we will always do that. So I couldn't be too pessimistic. I mean, it. Every era finds its own way. You know, this era is closing in terms of good, good, good nonfiction through television. It doesn't mean that there's no good uh, nonfiction being made. You know, so I mean, it's it's hard to know. It's just that you know the, the free-to-air networks discovered that they really are. You know, they have a limited life with with the way that young people don't watch television so much, and and um, and the way that government but since Howard's time Howard was the first that he, he he put absolute um, conditions on his funding of the ABC and SBS and that means that they had to deliver more ratings 
mm. which, of course, the ABC never was in the business of ratings. It always used to be, you know, absolutely to, a, to, to you know, the, the era has, has, has become totally different. Television is now like not really a player in Australia in commissioning, in my view, in commissioning the, the great documentaries. I mean, it'll make good stuff and good entertaining stuff and, and you can learn a lot. You know, it'll make all sorts of history and it'll make all sorts of things that are really interesting, but it'll be done in a way that anyone can understand and, and you know, you're taken through it by, by the hand, you know. So you don't have to think a lot yourself. And then in that way, it's changing. But just as when I was young... Um, in Australia, the, I was making films in, in Europe, and then I came back here after working at Four Corners when I was kind of 20 or something. And then I came back here, and I discovered that Australia didn't have any place for independent filmmaking. Mm. You know, if you weren't employed by one of the television stations, you couldn't make a film. You could make a film, but you couldn't, you couldn't distribute it. It wouldn't get a... It wouldn't, television didn't buy any by independent filmmakers. So that, that was a huge battle that we fought. I mean, Dennis O'Rourke was a great mate of mine since we were 18, and, you know, a few of us actually just fought that battle. That Number one, you don't have to make films only about Australia. There can be a, an Australian view of the world, a global view, just like a painter or a poet or a, or a, or a, or a composer. It's like, you know, you... You want to? You have to cover Australia. I mean, it's got to be covered on your television sets, but you don't have to be limited to your own backyard. Mm. And so we overcame that after years of lobbying and going to Canberra and so on, and we won that battle. Then it said, television, television's got to be able to accept the ideas of, of its brightest young filmmaking people. So, and this is all documentary I'm talking about, not drama. It's a different story. But anyway, so in that way, we also won that. That created, you know, there was there was there was a meeting at a East Sydney cafe once where we got we got every television network head to to address the documentary people in Australia and and say why they were going to introduce it in our work. It was terrific, and all that sort of stuff was kind of a, a history of how documentary got going in Australia in the new way, and and that and that really was a battle that was won. Now. And that was great. That gave all of us, you know, everybody from, from well, including Bradbury and Zabriskie and, you know, everybody and Bob Connolly, or he was working at the ABC. But basically all of those sorts of things were fought for and won because people wanted to make their own stories. At the moment, it's, it's very difficult to do that same thing here. It's really got to be film festivals and, and cinema, but cinema is very, very careful too about what, what projects they'll take. Mm. They've got to be something that can get an audience, naturally. So it's kind of like we've lost the art, you know, the, 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 the absolute nexus between, between politics and art that, that documentary should be. And we've lost that on television. But it doesn't mean people won't make it and people are making great films. And they still, they always will. And, and, and at, the, at the film festivals, certainly in Sydney and Melbourne, you'll always see wonderful Australian documentaries as well as international documentaries that, you know, some of them might get on television, but a lot of them won't. So it's just, you know, you can't expect television to supply what we built as a market for ourselves no. and then <laughs> lost. You know, we can't expect that anymore. So the, the younger generation is going to find its own way. And they're doing that. God, they're doing that. They're doing everything. They're doing crowdfunding. They're, you know, they're doing possible. They're doing, they're doing internet um, uh, distribution. It's not easy, but times do take a lot of work to change uh, the governing forces of an era. Yes, and definitely through, through programs like, um, you know, FanForce and, and stuff like that, certainly I've seen... A in WA at least, because unfortunately uh, through, you know, they, they do get, ex a lot of documentaries get screenings in Melbourne and Sydney, but they don't reach other states. So right. uh, through fan force right. or, or um, streaming services and, and in WA at least there's a, a, a festival called Revelation Film Festival, which is just fantastic. Yes, there is. That's mm. right. And yes. No, that's wonderful. Yeah. And they, they regularly screen, um, sort of uh, a, an Australian film once a month um, as, as part of sort of their promotion. They regularly do documentaries as well. So, you know, for, for viewers, at least that's one way of, of connecting to them, which is fantastic. And, of course, the, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, um, you know, it's got a great lineup this year as well, and uh, and it's great sure, to see that, um, sure. you know, people are able to head along and go and see them, which is fantastic. Um, and there's odd Ausflix. 
Yes, Ausflix as well, which is is a brilliant yeah, service. That's, that's a new new one. Yeah, that's yeah. good. But you know, that's it. So you know, documentary, the future of documentary is it's it's just like ever. It's going through a, a period of you know big change, and 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 but people who are dedicated to to to, to telling stories that they want to tell by filming them will always find their way, and I'm very optimistic about that. No, I I am too. I am too. Um, mm. The final question before we wrap up, it's a question which I tend mm. to ask um, most guests that I have on the show, is, you know, is there a, a, a documentary, an Australian documentary uh, in particular, that you would recommend that people seek out, besides your own, of course? <laughs> yeah, um, um, look, so many. I don't know. I did mention Waiting for Fidel. I think that's an, I think that's an important historically. It's, a, it's an important film um, because it... it because it really does ex- explore the process of filmmaking and the and the and the and the, and the junction between financing and and um, you know and, and uh, concept, so I think that's really good. Um, oh, so many. Let me just think. Um, <laughs> I, I always spring God. it on people, and I should I should really let them know in advance so they can do uh, some thinking. Yeah, <laughs> because I've got, I love films. Um, um, uh, but I'm. I mean. They're, the ones that stand out a long time ago because they were the ones that impressed me when I was beginning. So I'm trying to think, oh, well, actually, I would recommend any of Dennis O'Rourke's films. I and mean, people don't know his work, they mm-hmm. should. But, you know, looking at his New Guinea work is just fantastic. His, um, his, you know, the first film he made there was called Yumi Yet, which was about Papua New Guinea's independence. The next one is 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 incredible film called Election, which was about the first elections in Papua New Guinea, and it's I L E K S E N, and that just absolutely like matches the natural uh, energy exuberance and and volume of Papua New Guinea people with a Western democratic system. And the filmmaking is the same as the people. It's just a wonderful film in that way. He also made lots of films like Cannibal Tours, which was great about, you know, just like I was saying about the Yangtze mm. uh, riverboat cruises, that that, that, that that was about going through Americans and Germans going through um, Papua New Guinea on a boat with Dennis. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, Dennis O'Rourke's films... Um, um, Rubo's films. Uh, what, what have I seen recently that I really like? See, I don't watch. I just, Andrew, I don't watch documentary on television anymore because, you know, I'm not interested in in in, in factual. Yes, and it's very hard to get good things. I mean, The Power of Nightmares was absolutely fantastic. Adam Curtis is a brilliant man in at the BBC. He's called the Professor there, and 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 he makes films that are completely conceptual. You know, nothing to do with factual. And it's wonderful, but I'm trying to think of... It's hard here at the moment because I can't think... I haven't seen much on telly. What have I seen in the cinema? Oh, look, I'll have to get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a think about it and I'll text you. Yes, yes. Look, Nick, I, I really appreciate the time. Um, it's It's been fantastic. And thank you so much for your film as well. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, certainly anybody who is uh, interested in... in you know, seeking out these sorts of cinema, these films, uh, head along to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. I'll put more information on the website. Yeah, thank you again, Nick. I appreciate it. You have a, a lovely day and thanks for your time. Terrific, Andrew. Thanks for the interest. Good on you. Bye. Bye. So there we go. What a pretty great interview. I was really, uh, really enjoyed that conversation with Nick and you know just a fascinating time learning a lot about his films and the history of china as well with his film china's three dreams nick is a man of his word and he sent me through a list of a few other films that he recommends seeking out and they are scott hicks's documentary on philip glass glass a portrait of philip in 12 parts it's a film that just like a few of the other ones that he's recommend seeking out i've been meaning to watch it looks fascinating really interesting and it's certainly on my to watch list um documentary from last year which was snow monkey which was directed by uh george gittos and that is a really fascinating documentary it was nominated for best documentary film at the actor awards last year and it's a film that's about a first-hand journey going through afghanistan in a way that you don't really get to see 
Um, and I'm pulling it directly from the website because it's a little bit of a difficult film to describe, but it's a film that when I watched it last year was really, really great and, and one I highly recommend seeking out. And that is, once again, the name for that one is Snow Monkey. Uh, and then there is also Pari and the Rainmakers, uh, which is directed by Nicole Ma. Now, that's a film that I've been meaning to see for a very long time, and I really should get to it. Um, it's been on my list to watch. Uh, it looks fantastic. Um, I believe it actually won the um, Cinefest Oz Prize for the Best Film in that year as well. So, you know, it's got, it's got some great uh, awards behind it as well. And then there's also Prison Songs by director Kellerick Martin. And that is about the, the reality of prison. And especially looking at it from an Indigenous perspective as well. Which, again, is a film I haven't sought out. And, and I'm really grateful to Nick for bringing it to my attention because it's a film which I wasn't aware of and I'm really keen to watch it now. Next up is a documentary called Contact, which is directed by Martin Butler and Bentley Dean. And it's about British and Australian governments who are trying to test space rockets uh, and the Indigenous people that, that are around that. Again, it's not a film that I ha- I've seen. And again, it's a film that I really need to see. This is fantastic to have all these uh, recommendations on the list. And finally, the last film that he recommended is a, a director called Curtis Levy and his film Hefseba. Now, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it is H-E-P-H-Z-I-B-A-H. And it is about Hefseba Menuhin, uh, who's a concert pianist and human rights worker. And Hefseba toured the world and gave concerts around the the world at a really young age. Um, And it's basically about their story. And I'm repeating myself, but it's a film that I haven't seen. And it's a film that I really want to see. And just like China's Three Dreams, these are all films that you really need to seek out because documentaries in Australia are are fantastic. And not only that, but we tell some really fascinating stories that that just unfortunately don't get out into the public consciousness enough. I sound like a broken record on these interviews and, and on this particular podcast, but it's part of the reason why I do this podcast and do these interviews is to help bring you know certainly for me in a selfish regard bring these films to my attention because i love seeing cinema of all different types but it's also to help bring these to you the listeners attention as well because you know i like to think that i've got my fingers in the film pie and i know what's going on in australian cinema fairly well but even then even though i do read the websites and follow all the news and stuff like that there are films like these films that slip by the radar so you know this is why the last new wave exists to be able to help bring these films to attention and it's a it's a reason why a documentary film festival like the melbourne documentary film festival exists as well so you know do head along if you're in melbourne and those times to go and seek out these uh these films because they're really really worth it um that's really about it for me you've heard enough from me the meat of this particular episode has been that interview with Nick. Again, it's great. I really enjoyed doing it. And, and thank you so much again for Nick uh, for, for giving me your time to discuss your film. Um, really, really, really enjoyed it. Now the self-promotion stuff. Um, if you like what I do, head over to our website, which is abfilmreview.com. And you can hear other episodes of The Last New Wave or... Our main show, which is AB Film Review, where my wife, Bernadette, and I review films every so often. Uh, It's a little bit more free-flowing than this show is. Um, And also, this particular podcast shares a network with other film-related podcasts, which is followingfilms.com. So if you like the interviews that I do, then you might enjoy what uh, one of the guys on that particular network does, which is Chris Maynard. He hosts a podcast called following films and he interviews people who basically work with films he did a, a interview recently with repeat guest leah thompson which is a fantastic interview highly recommend seeking it out it's also a show called pop culture case study which i'm on um once in a blue moon to discuss uh films at length and i really enjoy that uh that show as a fan of the show and also having been on it with host dave so you know there's a couple of shows to seek out if you like Australian films, head over to ozflix.tv. 
you can rent a lot of uh, great Australian films and watch them on there. Um, hopefully, you know the, the the main goal of that particular uh, website, that streaming service, is to have all Australian films on there. Hopefully, eventually that does happen, and these documentaries that I'm talking about will be available on there as well. Uh, fingers crossed, it, it that goal is reached, and you can seek out these films on there. That site again is ozflix.tv. Finally, you can follow us on social media, AB Film Review, on both Facebook and on Twitter. That would be fantastic. Look, thank you again for listening to this episode. I really appreciate it. Go to mdff.org.au for information about the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival as well as the web to purchase tickets. China Story Dreams is showing at 5pm on the 15th of July. Keep watching Australian films. I'll see you on the next episode of The Last New Wave.